When I was younger, I never thought about my mortality. It was only after my mom died in her early 50s, almost weeks after a diagnosis, that I realized that life can be fragile. And it's only been the past 10 years that I've chased this fountain of youth. Better exercise, mindfulness exercises, greater focus on what I eat. I've had it easy, as I've been in good health my entire life. I've had skin cancer, which we caught in time, but I haven't had anything that approached life or death or disease, something that turned everything I took for granted upside down. And I have to be honest, even talking about this right now, I just don't want to jinx my blessings. My guest today is Lindsay Ireland, and the opposite holds true for her. Her health has never been right side up until possibly now. Here's what Lindsay says in the introduction to her book, Why Not Me? Images of war. Sometimes I feel as if my body is a battlefield. There have been wars fought on my belly, my ovaries, and my brain. Over 40 years have passed since I was admitted to the hospital for sick children. And after much agony and confusion, was diagnosed with my first autoimmune disease. The war images first started when I was at home recovering after my second surgery. When I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror, at 11 years old, I was 65 pounds with thinning hair and dark circles under my eyes. I immediately connected my reflection with the images I had seen of concentration camp victims. Death hadn't occurred to me consciously until that moment with the mirror. I have come to terms with the external battle scars. I actually appreciate the outlook on life they've afforded me. The internal damage has been difficult to assess. Peace has been hard won by sifting through the rubble in my mind and evaluating the struggle with open eyes. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Lindsay Ireland, one of the most heart-wrenching and beautiful openings to Chatter That Matters, and I welcome you to uh, the show. Thank you very much, Tony. I'm thrilled to be here. The words, and I love words, and this vernacular, sometimes I feel like my body is a battlefield. It's such a, a powerful way to start a book. And then I was so relieved in chapter one when you talk about loving lemonade. And I can see you smile right now. I wish people, it was as a podcast, you could see you <laughs> smile. But the memories of your famous aunt and uncle's farms. Share a couple stories about, and we'll let, we'll let the audience know in a minute just how famous they are. But first of all, just share a couple stories of life before you started this battle with a series of illnesses. I had uh, idyllic summers, particularly the month of August. I started going to my aunt and uncle's 700-acre horse farm in Vermont. It was rolling hills, wooded trails, lots of dogs, cats, horses around. Um, sometimes I close my eyes and I can almost smell it and feel it. The sunshine. We were outdoors all day. I had a younger cousin. She was two years younger than me. I had older cousins. They were in their teenage years. So there was always lots of hustle and bustle around. Um we would swim in the ponds. There were two swimming ponds. There were horse paddocks surrounding the house. We, uh, we were outside all day, my cousin and I. And even when it was raining, we were inside playing games. It was full of fun. The, the house was always busy. It was always full of fun and full of music. Um, my, my cousins played guitar, so they were always strumming their guitar in the background. They were racing around on their motorbikes while we were on our horses, you know, as kids, we rode horseback around the farm with no, no helmets on. I felt free 
and it all felt very alive. And, you know, they talk about now the power of nature that all came organically. It's just how we lived. There were no video games back then. This is like, this is like late seventies, early eighties. Right. Um, so when we, even when we weren't playing outside, we were building forts in the hayloft. We were playing Nancy Drew on horseback, trying to solve like these fake mysteries we would, we would make up. Um, it was, it was amazing. I feel really lucky to have had it. You know, my aunt and uncle would take us out after dinner, sometimes in our pajamas when this is when we're seven years old, my parents are not there. And, uh, and we'd go watch and find the deer in the horse paddocks. And it all felt, it felt magical. It really did. It was so far from my life in the city. My parents loved nature too. We would go on walks around our neighborhood and we, you know, we did things, but there I was fully immersed in it and fully immersed in family. And there were so many of us, different ages. It was, um, it was amazing. And I remember too, my aunt and uncle would get us up at like two in the morning if there was a, if there was a lightning storm, a thunderstorm. And so we would watch the lightning at two in the morning. It was just stuff I didn't do. I didn't do at home. We did there. And it was, it was fun. It felt very alive. Everything was, you know, there's all this noise and, and nature. It was amazing. For the audience, and it'd be interesting because I bet you half of people will go, oh my God, that's your aunt and the uncle. And the other half will go, I'm not sure who they are. Who are they? So my aunt was Jill Ireland and she was married to Charles Bronson. And you're absolutely right. Half the audience won't know. It's kind of if you were born after the 80s, I think, you might not know who they are. So you'll have to Google them. He was a very famous actor in his day. He did a lot of Western movies in Europe first, and then he became famous, really famous. He did some Hollywood classics. I think you like one of them. The Great Escape. Um, <laughs> like it. Steve McQueen and the Motorcycle. I mean, it was one of the great. It was a great oh. movie. So he was in that and the Dirty Dozen. But when he became really famous was in the mid-70s when he did Death Wish. And that spawned, I might have this wrong, but I think it was four four sequels. I think there was a Death Wish 5. It was like Rocky, right? Like it just kept, kept going. Money machine. It was a money machine. They always wanted to get away to Vermont and escape Hollywood. So the same way you found peace with nature and family. That was the same thing they did. They just wanted it. And it's just, it's such a beautiful thing that they were this magnetic core that brought so many people together. It was amazing. I'll always be grateful to them for that. I'm still close with my cousins and we still, when we get together, have all these wonderful memories. And your dad, interesting enough, also had sort of the you called it the chops to be an actor, but he was more of a pain and got into trouble more than he that he got on stage. So how did he feel but that Charles Bronson was doing what he would have loved to do? I don't think my dad had any bad feelings about it. He had wanted to be an actor when he was younger and he was traveling around doing all these Shakespearean shows and that was all male troops, right? This is back this is way back. This is the sixties. And he he stopped doing it. First of all, he had to earn a living to help pay for my aunt's coaching for her, her dance and her acting lessons. Um, I don't think there was any resentment there. He really enjoyed the time that we had there. And my uncle and my dad were really close. I think when you're that famous, it's hard to have friends that you fully trust. So we, as family, that's your inner core. Right. And my dad had has a great sense of humor and Uncle Charlie really loved being around him. He was one of his best male friends, my dad. 
and vice versa. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Lindsay Ireland. She spent a lifetime struggling to love a body that's continuously failed her. What you will soon learn that never fails her is her belief in the power of perspective to foster resilience, gratitude, and empathy. So, Lindsay, you're in Vermont. You're enjoying the farm, playing Nancy Drew. But right after your 11th birthday, you notice something isn't right. What happened? I noticed blood in my stool. I didn't really think it was a big deal because I, first of all, I was 11. So I didn't really know much about medical things. But it was a little bit of blood in my stool and I had no cramps or anything else. So I I said to my nine-year-old cousin, I've got blood in my poop. And she said, you know, don't tell anyone or you'll have to go to the doctor. And so I didn't, I bet I didn't think it was a big deal. But a couple of uh, weeks later, maybe a month later, you're back in Toronto after this wonderful August in Vermont and things get a little bit worse, don't they? I talked to my parents every day in Vermont, but I hadn't told them about the blood in my stool. And then when I got home a couple of weeks later, I started having cramps. When I look at photos from that time, Tony, my my skin color wasn't that good. So I, I, I wasn't being secretive. I just said to them, something's not right here. I've got, I was in pain. I had cramps along with the, the diarrhea and blood. And so they take you to the hospital and it's not just a simple visit, is it? No. So we, when we went to the doctor, we went to the family doctor first and the family doctor sent us to SickKids emergency basically and they weren't sure what it was happening to me so they put me in the uh, isolation unit at the hospital just to make sure I wasn't contagious. Six weeks earlier you're riding on a horseback now you're in a unit where people are scared to walk in in case they're going to catch what you have. I mean how did as you said at 11 years old I didn't know what was going on this must have been the most confusing time in your life. It was totally confusing. And, you know, when I was writing about it, it was during COVID and it wasn't lost on me. We were all confused during that time. It was overwhelming. And that's how I felt then. I felt alone and isolated and my parents could come in the room, but that was it besides the hospital staff. And everyone was covered in the protective gear, like COVID with the masks and the shoes. And I couldn't bring anything in if I wanted to make sure that it could go out, it couldn't go in. So my teddy bear that I wanted to bring, I didn't because I was afraid Teddy couldn't come home with me. And I don't think at that point I thought I was super sick. I, I didn't know what was going on. And it was it was confusing. You end up being in the hospital for six weeks. Yep. And your parents never leave your side, but they have to make a big decision. And that is... To an operation that could potentially, from what I understand in the book, it was a life and death decision. Yeah, they didn't really have a decision. So after really deteriorating quite rapidly and they couldn't couldn't keep up with the blood transfusions and I was having all sorts of invasive tests and everything else, a, a surgeon pulled my parents aside and said, it's life or death. She's losing so much blood. We can't stabilize her electrolytes. And I guess if you're really low in potassium, your heart can stop. So they said to them, this is all privately. I didn't hear this. They took them to a private room and said, we're worried her heart might stop. And we're worried her colon might rupture. So both things 
could kill you. And they said, we will not be responsible for her life if we don't do an operation to remove her colon. And with the removal of my colon, uh, I would have an ileostomy. So it was a lot to process for them quickly. They had to wrap their heads around it fast. And when you finally get released and you have this bag, I love the story about your younger sister coming into the bathroom and trying to make you feel better. I think she put a glad bag or something on her, on her stomach. <laughs> and I thought that was just so adorable that, you know, here's a sister that just wants you to feel everything's okay. But how did you feel coming home and knowing that you were going to be different, maybe for the rest of your life compared to most people? It changed me in many ways. Coming home, it felt normal in that I loved being home and everything was warm and cozy and I was with my family and I always just had a couple close friends. I wasn't someone who ran in a pack. So they welcomed me back with open arms. My sister had missed me. I'd missed her. She's five years younger than me. So she'd been basically without my parents for six weeks. So it was confusing for her too. But that it was almost better than normal, Tony, because I, I appreciated everything so much. After having been in hospital, my house felt even better than it did before. The part that didn't feel normal was I was really scared how people would react to me at school. They didn't know I necessarily had an ostomy, but they know I had been away sick. I think it was probably two months by the time I got back to school. It was right around Halloween. And, um, I was worried about that. I was worried about being perceived as different. I felt different. I'd just been through so much. So I was worried that people wouldn't accept me. Was there times where they didn't accept it? Because kids can be cruel if they think you're different or they feel they have power over you. There, there, there's that element of bulliness that comes through. Yeah, I was really lucky. So I remember one girl commenting on my really thin hair. Ooh, you've got really thin hair. And I thought, oh, God, like, is everyone going to be be that, you know, notice everything? And I was lucky. And I was always the kid at school, you know, when new people would move into the neighborhood, they would always pick me to sort of be the welcome buddy, because I was, you know, for lack of a better word, nice. Um, But I was, I had never, ever been mean to anybody. And I, I was, I was fortunate. And I think I did too. I carried myself okay. Even though I was worried, I, I went in there. Uh, I went in there with a certain amount of confidence. And one of the things that I love about your book is your dad's sister, Jill Ireland, who's married to Charles Bronson. This role that she plays almost as your fairy godmother in the sense that, you know, in one case, you're, I think you're age 13, you weigh 65 pounds, you've got more health complications, but she finds a way to take you out and buy lingerie and make you feel that you're, you're pretty and that you're going to be okay. And that you're going to, people will be attracted to you and stuff. That's an incredible person to have in your life. I mean, it's not that your mother wouldn't do that. It's just having someone else just adds more validation, I think, than just being that, you know, my parent. It did for sure. She was a really, really important person in my life. And growing up, she to me was the epitome of wet femininity. And I was worried after that surgery or bunch of surgeries, that that was one of my main concerns, that I would be perceived as unfeminine or dirty. And I never spoke about it with my aunt, but she instinctively knew. She always knew. Even when I was a gawky teenager, she'd tell me I was pretty and she'd do my hair. She sent me all these cool clothes from LA that nobody else had. 
Um, and, you know, in her bathroom, they were always pretty, we were never allowed in their bedroom or their bathroom, but their bathroom had the only bath in the, in the farmhouse in Vermont. So when we were little, we'd go in there and I'd see all our pretty under things hanging up and I'd think, oh, you know, it was the epitome of pretty and feminine. And when she did that, I almost felt like I was being invited into a club. And when we, we left that lingerie shop, I felt, uh, I felt like a, a young lady instead of a sick teenager. It was, it was pretty powerful. And one of the saddest parts of the book is this fairy godmother, this caregiver gets sick and you have to now give her care. That must have been a horrific part of your life because she was so important to you. It was totally devastating is what it was. And still, I, yeah, still I'm devastated when I think about it. And we, once she got her breast cancer, it was almost like we were comrades. I under, we understood each other. Uh, she had lost her breast and I had the ostomy. And uh, yeah, that it was really, really hard. I still miss her. When we return, we're going to move the story forward, but Lindsay gets married. But can a body with seven surgeries let her be the mother she dreams of being? It's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. Recent Ipsos survey, sponsored by RBC Royal Trust, reveals that over one half of Canadian adults do not have a will. And that number jumps to 66% in the 34 to 54 age group. This January, take the time to create a will. Protect your family, your wishes, and your legacy. And if you already have one, it's a great time to review it. Find out more, rbc.com slash royal trust. Having a will matters to you, your family, and to RBC. Leave a legacy, not a burden. But I do, I believe in the whole making lemonade out of lemons. And so with all the challenges I've gone through in my health, being more in touch with my body and how I feel is also a gift. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Lindsay Ireland, a lifetime of sickness, but an attitude to life from which we can all learn. I want to move the story forward. So you graduate with a Bachelor of Science in Psychology and you go to work at SickKids, the hospital you were first treated in. And I, I'm so curious because there must have been so much trauma and pain stored in your brain about that place. I mean, you're a young kid in a contagious unit, isolated, and now you go back and work there. What, what do you think led you there? I had done my degree in psychology at university, and I had a family friend who worked in psychology research at SickKids. She offered me a job. And so the office itself, when I first started, was not in the hospital. It was in office building across the road from the hospital. So I was part of SickKids, but I wasn't in SickKids. Life is so weird sometimes, Tony, I swear. We moved offices into the hospital on the sixth floor. And when I had first been in hospital, I was in Ward 6C. So half the, half the floor was still a ward with hospital beds in it, and half had been converted to, to offices. And we were in these offices, but they hadn't taken out the loudspeakers and stuff in the rooms. So I could still hear pages from nurses to doctors. I could even hear code blues. Like, it was so surreal. And I felt like I had lead in my shoes. Like I would feel stuck, really, really stuck. When you say it was a 
like got into my mind for sure it did it's uh i used to have a in my office chair had wheels on it so i would wheel myself over to the printer instead of walking because i felt that heavy and it it wasn't lost on me that wheels sort of they played a big part in my hospital stay because I would be wheeled away on a gurney for tests or I would be wheeled away in a, a wheelchair when I was so weak I couldn't walk. So, yeah, it was uh, provided some excellent fodder for therapy. <laughs> and I want to talk about therapy because one of the recurring themes in your book is connectivity with humans. Sometimes you're giving this care, sometimes they're giving it to you. In this case, you start working with a therapist was she a lot like Jill Ireland? I don't mean in personality or fashion, but did she have the same sixth sense about who you are and where you were heading in life? I was one of her very first patients. You know, I think half the struggle in therapy is connecting with the right therapist, right? And somehow we got it right from the start. She, I felt like she understood me. I felt... Um, I saw her for a long time too, Tony, right? But right from the start, I felt at ease telling her things and I felt like she saw me. And after being sick for so long and having things done to you that you have no control over, it was nice to feel seen. And yes, so if you compare it with my Aunt Jill, I felt very seen by her too. And she was a woman, right? So that helped too. But she wasn't like my aunt in lots of ways, but she was definitely, I felt very safe with her. Do you feel, and I don't want to make this, you know, because some people are just going to roll their eyes, but do you feel Jill sent her to you? That's a really good question. And, you know, I still feel my aunt Jill around and quite possibly because there were times when I was with my therapist where I felt like Aunt Jill was with me. In one of the parts of the book, I get so angry. I mean, you're having difficulty conceiving. Your body's being, you know, chainsawed with all these surgeries. And you're in getting ready for a test, and you're sexually violated by a staff. Does it ever come a point in your life you're going, why am I the magnet for all of this? Yeah, I've had that thought maybe a few times. But generally, so I that was actually when I was going in for a surgery as an adult. So I was in my mid twenties and it was the anesthesiologist. So they come in and talk to you before a surgery when you're going to be put to sleep. So I'm literally at my most vulnerable, really worried about being cut open by a surgeon. But the other person who has so much control is the anesthesiologist because they put you to sleep and they wake you back up. So unfortunately I was alone with him. There wasn't a nurse in the room when she came in she covered me back up. And at the time, I do remember feeling a little flash of anger, but I didn't really have space in my brain for that because I was at this guy's mercy, the most vulnerable you could basically be. And I didn't feel like I had the option to say anything. So I just stayed focused on the fact that I was going in for surgery. Let's hope that the surgeon has had their coffee and not had a fight with their spouse or that everyone was in a good mindset. And I had to just drive forward. I didn't really think about it till much later. What I can tell you, and it's not in the book is a week later, I went back to hospital because I had complications and they needed to put me under again to fix what was going on. And I said to the nurse, don't leave me. 
I said, because this is what happened before. So can you please stay with me when the anesthesiologist comes in? So I had, it did upset me enough that I did something about it. But at the very moment that it happened, I, I didn't have the, the wherewithal or feel like I, I was in a position to, to say anything. My guest today is Lindsay Ireland, who's written this wonderful book called Why Not Me? I read it cover to cover. It's an incredible memoir, but it's also a lesson to all of us in terms of appreciate what we have. So, Lindsay, we're moving the story along again, and I hope the audience is staying with me, but your life has been such a roller coaster. 2001, you experienced numbness in your hand, and doctors think it has something to do with this neck, chronic neck problem you're facing. But you know it's different. So take us back to that. I, I did have a stiff neck and we x-rayed my neck and I had bone spurs in my neck and I had some deterioration in my neck. I, I instinctively knew it wasn't my neck. I had the numbness in my hand, but I also had intense fatigue. And I, I usually had lots of energy. I worked out all the time. I, you know, I, I was a go, go, go type of person my right leg started dragging as well. So I Googled a few things and I could, my, I, I just know my body and I just felt like it was something more than a pinched nerve textbook case for MS. I had the numbness. I had the dragging leg. I had the fatigue. I was a woman in my thirties of Northern European descent, literally like check, 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 check. My gut was right. I didn't want it to be right, but it was right. I guess you have two ways of dealing with it. I don't have your courage. I would, have, If I had had everything that happened to me to date and this happened, I'm wondering if I go, is life even worth pursuing? But you, you go after this disease and saying, I'm going to find a way to contain it by exercise and food and yoga and just doing everything you can. And I'd love you to give some advice to others that when the unexpected happens and something is given to you that you didn't ask for or want, how should they approach it in a way that has the same sense of perspective that you do? Perspective is a choice. First of all, you probably would deal with it better than you think, Tony. But perspective is a choice. So we we make choices all the time on how we view things. Um, you can decide whether you're going to be positive. And I guess my advice is try and, and choose a perspective that will work best for you. I really think it's important. It's been very important for me anyway, is just do the very best you can on any given day with what you have. So that's mentally, physically, your resources, whatever they are. So sometimes for me, I'm going through a really hard time with my MS, literally three minutes of seated yoga can feel like a win, but it is a win because in four days time, I'll be doing six minutes of seated yoga. And then I'm on my, I'm on my way. Baby steps add up to big wins. And your husband doesn't buy in. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but your marriage breaks up. Do you feel that, and if this is too personal, don't answer it, but do you think you were better off being on your own, dealing with what you had versus maybe someone that would challenge your ability to stay positive? I, it's not too personal. I definitely think that. I think you need someone who lifts you up and to feel heard, who trusts the fact that you trust your instincts, right? So I know what's going on. Um, I think positive energy 
begets positive energy. So if you're not getting that back, I think it could be quite detrimental to your physical and your mental well-being. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Lindsay Ireland. She wrote this incredible bestseller called Why Not Me? I encourage you to read it because no matter what kind of circumstances you're facing, what she talks about with the power of perspective to foster resilience, gratitude, and empathy are lessons we can all learn about. You remarry, and I can see the smile on your face. How did you come to terms with, I'm willing to surrender my love to someone else and I'm asking them to do the same, but I can't offer them the same guarantees. I'm asking that as advice for others because there's lots of times in life where one person doesn't feel as worthy as the other. I definitely had those worries. You just have to trust. It took me a while, not that long, I guess, but to go out there and date again. I wasn't in a rush. I didn't want to make the same mistakes twice. I had my eyes wide open to the fact that maybe someone wouldn't want to take me on. I was, I felt like a bit of a broken bag of toys, to be honest, but I didn't really see myself that way. Otherwise, how can you move forward? I just thought, you know, if I don't find the right person to, to be with long-term, then I'm okay on my own. I had a wonderful son, a wonderful family, great friends. I had a very full life. So in no way was I desperate. Luckily, you know, lucky us, we found each other. One of the beautiful parts of your book is how much you love to dance. Like you talk about, you know, being on the cruise and stuff and there's a seven day cruise. This is only day one and you're closing down the bar, but your body lets you down once again. I had a bowel obstruction and they did a CT scan and my my bowel obstruction passed, thankfully. And those results got sent to my gastroenterologist. And literally, like, months later, I have an appointment with him. We do an MRI, and I have a narrowing of the bile ducts in my liver, which is primary sclerosing cholangitis. It's a mouthful, PSC. It's another autoimmune disease. At the time, again, devastated to have another autoimmune disease, but I wouldn't have had that diagnosis had I not had the bowel obstruction. It was a secondary diagnosis. So I kept that in my head. I had no real symptoms of the PSC. I went to the hepatologist. Uh, I went to my naturopath. I figured out there's no med- medicine I can take for it. My diet that I was doing for my MS also helps PSC. And I just have to hope for the best. I want to now turn to this whole concept again of the power of perspective. First of all, what motivated you to write the book? So when I was starting off, it was therapeutic because I I actually started the book in 2001 and then just shelved it, but I was going through a precarious time in my health. So I started kind of writing it in a therapeutic way. I was taking a writing course and that images of war that we started with, the instructor said to me, Oh, you know, you actually could maybe help people. You could share something. So I started it with that. Then I really, when you're working and you're a mother and just life in general, I didn't have the time to do the book. It's funny you like, I like lemonade, the first chapter, I think to myself, I didn't mean it in this way at the time when I wrote it, but it was taking the lemons of COVID and making them lemonade is, is I had the time and the energy because MS can suck my energy to spend seven hours a day and write the book. My goals changed with it over time. At first it was therapeutic. And then as I started writing, I thought, spread some awareness about ostomies because a lot of people don't understand that they're not not as awful as they 
as people think. And spread awareness about MS, because I think it's a misunderstood disease too, because they're both invisible illnesses, unless you're quite far along with the MS, then it's not invisible. And also, I really do believe in the power of perspective. I, I've seen it in myself and my own family. It's not going to cure my MS, Tony, right? It's not going to take away my bag, but it's going to allow me to live my best life with what, what you have. I think the positive energy that inside you, if you can tap into that, it's, it's healing and it also attracts positive energy back. And how's your health today? My health is pretty good. So it's up and down with my MS. The ostomy is, you know, for me, basically a non-issue. Same with the PSC, touch wood. Can you still dance a few steps? I can still dance, Tony. (laughs) And if anyone is listening to this who knows me, uh, you know, my nickname was the Dancing Queen in university. So I... I could just see it with your energy and and, uh, life. You know, I always end my show with my three takeaways. And the first one is when you got out of sick kids the first time and you looked around and you said, I can really appreciate what I used to just consider my home. And I think that's such a powerful lesson for people that sometimes you need to go to that doorstep and return and realize that what you left behind is something so very special, the teddy bear, the younger sister, just the smells of your home and stuff. And I think that is just beautiful. The second one is just the role your people have played in your life, your dad, your mom, your therapist, your aunt, Jill Ireland, and the role you've played in their lives. And the the level of connectivity and humanity that has just roared through back and forth. And I just love how anytime you were probably feeling less than a human or not a woman or not attractive and Jill Ireland would show up with makeup or dresses or take you to that lingerie store. And, and then when you were caring for her and it just, I think that she is with you. You can tell it's in the words in the book. It's almost like you wrote the book to her. So I thought that was beautiful. And then the final one, which is sounds so easy, but again, it takes such courage. It takes your perspective. It takes gratitude is live your best life, no matter what cards you're dealt. And you've been dealt some pretty lousy cards and not just once or twice, but as you say, trying to be visible with three invisible diseases. I am so glad I have you as a guest and chatter that matters. I am so happy that I get to see what my audience won't is this beautiful, radiant smile and sharing your stories because I think that why not me? I think you were given these reasons to help many more with what they deal with. So thank you for joining me in Chatter That Matters, Lindsay Ireland. Thank you very much for having me, Tony. And thank you very much for those kind words. I really do appreciate them. Joining me now is one of my favorite go-to people, Amy Deacon. She's the CEO and founder of Toronto Wellness Counseling. I always go to Amy when I'm, I'm interested in human nature because if there's anybody that can nudge, help, guide, it's Amy Deacon. Amy, welcome back. I'm so glad to be here. Lindsay Ireland, what a what a story, a lifetime battling her body. Amy, first thing I want to ask you is, are certain people just wired to be resilient and have this kind of positive attitude no matter what cards they're dealt? I think when it comes to resilience, there's probably a little bit of nature involved. I don't want to you know, eliminate that possibility, but I do think a lot of it is nurture. And sometimes I know one question that I'll always ask clients is, what did you learn about hardship from your parents? And if there was a lot of complaining, if there was a lot of what was me, we learn that really easily as kids. And sometimes even if we have those um, 
stiff upper lip type parents that are like, no, keep going, keep grinding, keep putting one foot in front of the other, that translates. And, and so I think that resilience can be taught at the same time. What I will also say, especially for something so insidious as when you feel betrayed by your own body, there's a darkness that people go through with that. And some people, whether it's conscious or unconscious, they make the decision to create their own light. They recognize that they're in an abyss of darkness. And so they, they start to take these little steps to just create the light that they need in order to get through this. And so when people come to you, whether it's a parent that's worried about their child or, or someone that's just coming to you and saying, there might be a glimmer of a light, but I'm just feeling, as you said, betrayed by my body, abandoned by it. Why me? Why me? How do you help someone like that to say that maybe that little glimmer of a light can become one day a guiding light? I don't mean to sound cliche, but I, and this is going to sound cliche, but I really do believe that hope is a choice. You have to process the feelings of betrayal, of grief, of sadness. You almost think of it as these emotions are like islands that you visit. You visit the anger, you, you visit the betrayal, you visit the grief, but then what do you come home to? And what you want to come home to, what we help clients come home to is a place of hope. And that's, that can be a choice and it's a very difficult choice. And there are going to be times that you don't want to go back home, uh, but that's the only chance that you have of being able to stay grounded and stay sane during a time that's so uncertain. And one of the other things I've found is these people that, are, that overcome the circumstances, which is the essence of the show, very often they they find those steps forward by putting pen to paper, journaling, writing. Sometimes as in this case, it, you know, it turns into an actual book. Is that part of therapy is when you decide to, you're going to share, even if you don't share your thoughts with anyone else, you're going to put those thoughts down on paper? There's actual research to suggest that journaling and the practice of exactly what you're saying, taking any thoughts, any feelings doesn't have to be even coherent, but just releasing that is one of the most effective ways of creating clarity within your own mind, within your own body, uh, really processing those feelings. Absolutely. Journaling is, is, is a very powerful key uh, to improving your mental health. And Amy, I have one more question for you because we've become so tight on this show. How do you compartmentalize what you have to deal with every day in terms of people coming to you and they're trying to release that negative energy? They're trying to take that burden away, but how do you find a way not to take it in yourself because when I talked to Kevin Newman the journalist he talked about there's a lot of PTSD with journalists because they're always digesting this news and trying to synthesize and, and present it in a way it must be the same for your profession. I think it depends. I think there are times where it is really intense and you're exposed to things that are just horrific. So there are definitely times where, you know, you break down and you cry and you seek comfort from whether it's your your family or your friends or your own therapist. But then I've, I've got to say, I always knew that this is what I wanted to do. And so more days than not, the vast majority of days for me, it's an honor to be the person that people feel safe sharing everything with because I know that it will get better and to be a part of that process to watch things go from such a disaster to this place where people feel like they're able to be at peace and live fulfilling lives I get to see that so I'm able to see I know that there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel and for me that's me choosing hope there's so many people struggling right now and I think just having someone like you the Yoda that says hey we're going to get through this it's going to get better they must walk out of your office just saying that is a person that cares. So thank you for joining me on again on Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much, Tony. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.